Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and it's a privilege for me to be here with you, uh, to be able to fill in for Pastor David. Uh, he finally let me out of the youth room and allowed me to um, come join the big kids in the, in the church. So, uh, no, I, I'm very honored and privileged to be able to uh, minister the word with you this morning. Of all the sports that I played growing up, I only played track once. That was my seventh grade year. I was 12 years old, and I had great visions of running across that finish line and winning awards. I soon found that running track is not the same thing as running around my backyard. There is a lot more to it. There is uh, a lot longer courses to run, and I found that I, this was the kind of running where I needed to dig down deep, where I needed to find some strength, where I needed some endurance because, oh my goodness, what, I feel like I'm going to die and I'm only halfway through this race. And I remember uh, as a scrawny seven, uh, seventh grader rounding the track still at 100 meters to go, and the fellow competitors are alongside me, and I'm just flailing with everything that I got, and I have that fleeting thought in my mind, am I going to make this? Am I going to make it to the end of this race? My legs are burning, my lungs are gasping for air, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this. And in some senses, Spiritually, we this morning are right where I was in the middle of that race. We are all in a race, but none of us have reached the finish line yet. And the question before us then, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it to the end of the race? Now, I don't mean, will you come to the end of your, of your life, because that is guaranteed. The question is, when your life does come to an end, will you still be faithful to Christ? Will you still be clinging to the faith that you now profess? I think we all know those who have once claimed the name of Jesus, and now they have walked away from Him. They have abandoned the race. They have gotten off the track. And so, we need to know how we can endure, how we can finish the race, how we can cross the finish line. And our passage this morning is going to help us do that. So if you would, please open your personal copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And to start out this morning, we're just going to be reading verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. So follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you can see in these two verses that the primary instruction is found in the phrase, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And therefore, the main primary exhortation for you and for I this morning is that we run. We have a command here to run. It's a present tense verb, which means that we need to be continually running. We are always about the task of running. We're not to give up. We're not to stop. I want you to first see a few things about this race. Notice first the use of the word us. He says, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. He could have used the second person saying you, but he doesn't. He uses the first person plural and says us. And this reminds us that we're not the only ones on the track. You're not the only one running this race. I'm not the only one running this race. This is a corporate race where all the people of God who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are all running towards a common goal. You're not running this race alone this morning. The person in front of, in the pew in front of you, sitting next to you, behind you, is running with you. We're all on the same team and we're all going in the same direction. Secondly, I want you to notice what kind of race it is. Notice it says, let us run the race that is set before us. This is a race that's been set before us. Your loving Father has placed out a race for you. It's been set before you. And so in a certain sense, the Christian life is really a process of discovering more than it is of of choosing and deciding. We, day by day, we are discovering what race that God has for us. And I think our experience holds true to this. If we looked back across our lives so far, I'm sure there are many things in your life that you probably would not have chosen for yourself. That if you were planning the race, if you were setting your own race before you, you probably wouldn't build in that sharp turn or that steep climb, or that sudden drop-off. But the races that we are running, the races that are marked before us, that are set before us, our loving Father has given it to us. And each day we discover what that is. But I think it's also important to realize that each of us have a different race marked before us. Yes, we're all running towards a common goal, but the route to get there is often very different between us. The race marked out for you is different than the race marked out for your friend, or the race that's set before your spouse, or before your child. We all have different difficulties, different turns in life, and therefore, It is the race that is marked before us. And so God calls you to run the race that's set before you. 
not running somebody else's race, not wishing you were running somebody else's race, but be content with the race that God has given you and run that with endurance. And that leads us to see how, how he wants us to run. He wants us to run with endurance. Now this word endurance means to remain under, to bear up patiently. And it refers to remaining under difficult, heavy circumstances. When the pressure's on, we're not going anywhere. When life presses in, we're not squirming to get away. We're not trying to get out from underneath it, but we're patiently, contentedly staying there. We're bearing up underneath these circumstances. Now, this concept of endurance implies the understanding of the sovereignty of God. For it knows that this present suffering and the difficulties and burdens that we face are placed there by a loving God. They are tools in His hands. The things that we're called to endure are not tools as like a sledgehammer to crush us. But they're tools to form us and craft us into the image of Jesus. And so we are called to run with endurance because it's the only way through the trials. Now there is a reason the author here in our passage exhorts his readers to endure. And in chapter 10, we get some needed context for this passage. So if you would, flip back a couple chapters to Hebrews chapter 10. And here we see why he ends up writing chapter 11 and why he then writes 12, where our verses are this morning. But let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32. He writes, But remember the former days, when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Do you see the condition these people are in? Do you see the suffering that they're going to, going through? They're being publicly and privately mistreated. They're being persecuted. And it's because of that suffering, it's because of that pressure, that he then goes on. Well, let's pick up again in verse 35. He continues, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. 
And so in light of all of the persecution that these Hebrews were experiencing, they needed to endure. They needed endurance. And this is the calling for us this morning as well. We need endurance. We need to endure to the end. And this is what he's calling us to in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And we can flip back to those verses. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 finds us in the same position. We need endurance. And so whether you believe that you're going to live 40 more years or whether you're going to believe you're going to live four more years, you have some time between now and then and you need to run that stretch with endurance. And so this morning I want us to see in this passage three strategies, three strategies for running the race so that we will endure to the end. It's my desire that each one of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be able to persevere until the very end of our race. And our passage here gives us three strategies for doing that. The first strategy is this. We must run by recalling those who have gone before you. Run by recalling those who have gone before you. Look at the start of verse 1 with me. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, what are we recalling? What are we bringing to mind? We're bringing to mind that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If we're to run this race successfully to the end, then we need to listen and look back to those who have come before us. They're called witnesses here. And a witness is to be understood primarily as someone who testifies to something. They give witness to something. But it can also be used of one who's observing an event, like a spectator. And I think both of those come into play here. Notice that he calls this group of witnesses so great a cloud. He pulls a real descriptive term and and gives our our mind's eye this idea of just a huge mass of people. These witnesses that are surrounding us. And so I think there's a great vivid picture here that we can begin to paint in our minds. And that is of of an athletic arena. Maybe you've seen on TV with the Olympics. Where you just have the stands full of people. Thousands of people that are, that are surrounding this small track down below. And the image here in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is that all those who have walked faithfully with God before have run their race and now have, are filling the stands figuratively around us. And they are, they are sitting there as we run our race. Now, I don't believe this is meaning that all the saints in heaven necessarily are all watching us run. We don't really have that warrant from this passage. But I think the point that the author is trying to get across is that they are all around us and they are not sitting there quietly. Those witnesses are not sitting there non-witnessing. 
Those witnesses are sitting there and they are declaring something. And they are declaring it loud so that we would hear it this morning. And we need to hear what they're saying. And I think we can know what they're saying by seeing who he's referring to. Primarily, these witnesses are referring back to the chapter before. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Those from the Old Testament who have already run their race. They have endured to the end. And their lives stand as examples and as testimonies to us. They tell us that it's possible to run the race. They tell us that it's possible to finish. They tell us that it's only possible by faith. They're testifying to faith in God. Now this 11th chapter of Hebrews mentions the word faith over 20 times. That seems to be a clear emphasis that the author is trying to give across when he repeats himself, particularly over 20 times, we need to pay attention. And as he's talking about faith, he's recounting tale after tale of how people in the Old Testament lived their lives faithfully for God. And, and in that faith, they believed God's promises even when it didn't make sense humanly. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to build a boat when you've never seen rain, much less a flood. It doesn't make sense that an old woman would have a baby or that that, that baby must be sacrificed later in life. They didn't live for the approval of men or what felt good in the moment. They understood that they were looking for something better. And it's this belief that speaks to us today. In Hebrews 11.4, we read the account of Abel's faith. And there's a statement there that I think can be, rightly be applied to every other account in chapter 11. It says that through his faith... Though he died, he still speaks. Let me read that again. Did you catch that? Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And I think this is the connection between the past and the present. Even though all of these folks, these great cloud of witnesses, have already died and have, and have, have gone before us, though they de- they've died through their faith, they're still speaking to us. They're still speaking to us. And so let me, we don't have time to read all of chapter 11 this morning. But we need to be reminded that these men and women of old are speaking to you. Abel is speaking to you. Enoch is speaking to you. Along with Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Moses and Gideon and Barak. And Samson, these men and women of old are speaking to you. And they're crying out with one accord saying, put your faith in God. Believe in God. He keeps his promises and you will not be disappointed for placing your faith in him. Don't give up. Keep running. It's worth it. It may not make sense right now. If you only press on now, when you receive the reward, you will see that it was worth everything. My friends, 
these people of old are speaking to you, and they're telling you to press on, to not give up, to take one more stride. Now, we know that there are many other believers who have lived since the Old Testament, and that comprises really church history. And it's there that we find some wonderful stories of missionaries and pastors and theologians and, and those just faithful believers who, have, who stood against the suffering of their day and remained faithful to Jesus. And I think this is a strong encouragement for us to read those stories. We need to know the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. We need to read Christian biography. We need to read the Old Testament. We need to read Hebrews 11 and hear those stories for us once again and hear their, spake, their, their, their faith speaking to us. Now, just for a moment, I, rather than looking back, I want you to think about in the future. Think about when you have passed from the scene. How will your faith speak to those of that generation? What is your race going to be witnessing to? Is it going to be proclaiming the faithfulness of God? Is it going to be screaming at them to press on? Are we going to be, is our race going to say that we serve a, a trustworthy God? And the answers to those questions are really determined by how we live today. How we're taking strides today, moment by moment. I can attest from personal experience, my grandfather passed away when I was six years old. He was a faithful preacher of the Word of God for many years in a couple small Baptist churches here in America. He wrote no books. You can't find any of his recorded sermons on the internet. And I really can't remember any specific words that he spoke directly to me. But I can tell you, his faith speaks loudly to me today. I think of him often. And in his life, he testified to the faithfulness of Christ with unwavering conviction. And that memory of him girds me up and strengthens my heart to press on. He ran his course and was faithful to the end. Lord, give me the, the strength to do the same in my life. And so as we see here in the first verse of Hebrews 12.1, that we need to realize the great cloud of witnesses that are around us, and there's so much encouragement from knowing that we're not running this race alone, and that we're not the first people to run it. There are others who have run before us, and we need to hear their faith speaking to us this morning. So first, if you want to endure, then you must first run by recalling those who have gone before you. The second thing, the second strategy, is to run by removing all that hinders you. Run by removing all that hinders you. You can see this command in the next phrase of the verse. He says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, I find it highly ironic how many of us non-athletes watch the Olympics. 
here we are astounded by the great feats that humanity has to offer. And while we're sitting up in the middle of the night, filling our face with Doritos and Mountain Dew, and going, wow, that's amazing. I don't know how they do it. But what I think that shows is how different the agenda is for those who are competing and those who are not competing. For those who are not competing, they can do whatever they want. There's nothing that's hindering them or that's, that's uh, really limiting them in what they do. And yet when someone signs up to compete, signs up to run, everything changes. Your diet changes, your sleep changes, your schedule changes, the clothes you wear change. You can't just go running down the track in anything. And so the runner is striving to get rid of everything that hinders him, all bagging and peeding clothes, all foods that would keep his body from operating at maximum potential must go. Yes, that means Krispy Kremes and Frappuccinos. Um, yes, they might give you a sugar boost, but they're not going to take you down the track. The point is, life is determined by the race. Nothing else matters. He's solely focused on winning that race. And so this, this runner is willing to do whatever is necessary to get to that finish line, even if it means removing and laying aside things he may enjoy. Runners probably enjoy Frappuccinos too. But if they're training for the Olympics, they're probably not going to have three a week. And so if he wants to go as fast as he can, he's trying to be as light as possible. In the same way, we must be removing hindrances so that we can run as best as we can in our spiritual race. And the text gives us two things that we should be removing. Notice it says to lay aside every encumbrance. And then it says the sin that easily entangles. Now the verb to lay aside here is translated in other versions as to let go or to throw off. It's the verb used in Ephesians 4, talking about putting off the old man. And it describes the action that would be required for taking off of a jacket and casting it aside, never to put it on again. And so the author of Hebrews here is saying, run with endurance the races before you and cast off, throw aside, never to pick up again those things that are going to trip you up. Those things that are hindering you. And in our lives, we have weights. We have encumbrances that are keeping us from running as hard as we can. We know it. They're hindering us. They're tripping us up. And although these, these weights may not be sin in and of themselves, they're still keeping us from running as hard as we can. Now, the sin that so easily entangles us, there, there is things clearly described in Scripture as sin. They're clearly wrong. Robbery, lying, anger, sexual morality. Those things are wrong. They're sinful. And these must be laid aside and repented of by those who follow Jesus. We can't run a race if we're clinging to secret sin. And let me just say to you, if, if you're fostering sin in your life that you know to be wrong, repent of it today. Throw it off. You are hindering yourself from running 
fully after Christ. Don't cling to it anymore. For the sake of Jesus, repent of that sin. And if you feel that you are, easy, you are caught in this sin that so easily entangles and it's got you, got you wrapped up around the feet and you've been trying to get it off and you need help, I encourage you, humble yourself and ask for help. That's why the body of Christ is here. Now, apart from these explicitly sinful actions, there are many things in our lives that the Bible does not condemn as wrong. They are amoral, meaning they in and of themselves have no moral quality to them. And this goes for things such as our entertainment, movies, music, books. This goes for our technology, social media, our family, our friends, or a hobby maybe we've devoted ourselves to. All these things aren't necessarily wrong. They're not condemned outright. But the question that we have to ask is, what hold do these things have upon our hearts? The hindrances, the encumbrances, the weights are things that are probably, yes, they're okay for a Christian to do. But the question is, are they hindering you from running? Are they keeping you from running at full speed? Because your heart is so wrapped up in them. You spend so much time and so much affection towards this thing. The Christian is allowed to do almost anything, but the thing we need to ask is, is it profitable? Satan will use anything to get you off your race. He uses seemingly innocent things, things that we go, oh, there's nothing wrong for me here. And he'll use that to distract you. Listen how how one author puts it. He says, The great enemy of our souls does not care much what it is that keeps us from running our Christian course, if we are but kept from running it. And when he can so far delude us as to make us believe that we are running that course, when we are either standing still or proceeding in another direction, he considers his object as gained in the best possible way. We must be on guard against this delusion that we are somehow going in the right direction and yet we're being tripped up by seemingly harmless things. I encourage you this morning, if you feel frustrated by your lack of growth, if you feel like you're on the racetrack but you're jogging or you're crawling or you're barely making it along, I encourage you to look for the weights, the encumbrances, the sin that's in your life that could be tripping you up. The reason you're face flat on the racetrack is because you got something tied around your feet. And yes, you can stand up and take the biggest, hardest stride that you want, but if, you're, if your feet are tied up, you're not going to get very far. And so, we need to be looking for these weights that we have in our lives Ask the Spirit to reveal them and throw them off. Lay them aside. So the first strategy that we need to be doing in order to run is to run by recalling those who have gone before. Secondly, we need to run by removing all that hinders us. And thirdly and lastly, we need to run by regarding Jesus Christ. We need to run by regarding Jesus Christ. Look back at the text with me in verse 2. 
He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this last strategy is absolutely crucial. The author spends a whole verse on it. And this is the fundamental calling of all those who who call the name of Jesus. They are looking to Him. This is the primary occupation of our lives, is to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now the verb used here, looking or fixing our eyes, means to, to look away, to trustingly fix our gaze on someone or something. And the author continues the race metaphor here and has the picturing of the runner running down the track with endurance but has their eyes set on the goal. He sees the finish line, the prize. And other things might call him to give up, but he's not going to. He's going he's to stick it out to the end. So, as we take this exhortation to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, we need to ask, what does that mean? What does that mean for you and I today to be fixing our eyes on Jesus? When we can't see him physically, he's not going to come walking down the aisle here for us to all look at him. So what does it mean for you and I to fix our eyes on Christ? And I think 1 Peter chapter 1 gives us a glimmer at that. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, he says, And though we have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now Peter here is speaking to believers who are in a similar circumstance as those in Hebrews. They're believers who are being tested by trials and their faith is being put on the line. And they potentially could lose sight of what they were fighting for in the midst of these trials. And they were in danger of failing rather than enduring. And so Peter affirms their steadfastness. Peter says, you've never seen Jesus physically. And you don't actually see him physically now. But you still love him. And you still believe in him. Our looking to Jesus also involves these two aspects. Our love for Jesus and our belief in Jesus. This is what it means to look to Him. These are actions of our mind and our heart. Looking to Jesus, then, is not necessarily doing religious things. It's not putting a picture of Jesus on your wall, or dangling a cross in your rearview mirror, or even going to church. To fix your eyes on Jesus means that you set your heart to love only Him. That your affections are set upon Him and Him alone. There's no room for anything else. There is a primary location in your heart reserved for Christ. 
and you're committed to that, no matter what may come your way, you will believe that Jesus is your greatest love. And folks, if we ever lose sight of this, if we ever lose sight of Jesus Christ, then we're going to lose the endurance to finish the race. We can't turn our gaze from the end of the race and expect to keep running. I mean, think about a runner who's in the middle of the race and is suddenly focused on somebody in the stands and then begins to think about that time he was meeting with that person at a coffee shop and and then he kind of suddenly goes, wait, why am I running? <laughs> if, our, if, if the gaze is fixed someplace else, then the actions of our life will follow. We can't say that we, are, we have fixed our eyes on Jesus Christ when we devote no time to His Word. We devote no time to His people. We devote no time to private worship of Him. Fixing our eyes upon Him is a, is a daily, continual thing. Now, we can often get caught up in our present circumstances, can we not? And we get distracted and we forget that we're running this race. We forget that this is to be the primary task of our lives. And we're burdened down with all the things that we have. And so, we need to Fix our gaze again this morning. Look to Jesus. Look to your Savior. And set your eyes upon Him. Now, this looking at Jesus is not setting our mind on some distant divine figurehead or some uh, vague spiritual concept about God. We are looking to something that is, has supreme relevance for our lives. And particularly, it's the truth on who he is and on what he's done. And you'll see that there in verse 2. He, he first describes who Jesus is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, what does that mean? It means that he is the cause and the completion of the faith with which we run. It means that we look to him because he's already run the race. He's already run his course. He finished it, and he did it perfectly without sin. We see him all through the Gospels, living by faith. He's praying to and depending on his Father. He trusted trusted in his Father to sustain him and to bring him through. He says, I only do what my Father tells me to do. Notice also that the name of Jesus is used. It doesn't say fixing our eyes on Christ. It doesn't say fixing our eyes on the Son of God. It says fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I believe what's being emphasized here is Jesus' humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. The man who walked on this earth. Our eyes are focused on a man, a man who endured the race before us and now stands at the finish line calling to us. Calling us to follow in his footsteps. We're not looking to Christianity. We're not looking to spirituality. We're not looking to theology. 
We're looking to a man, and his name is Jesus, who walked upon this earth 2,000 years ago, died upon a cross, was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the Jesus that we look to. We gaze upon a life. Now, we fix our eyes on him, not only because of who he is, but we also fix our eyes on him because of what he's done. And notice how the, the author talks about that. It says that Jesus, the perfect runner, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. The pain and uncomfortable circumstances that we often go through don't even compare to the unspeakable horror that Jesus went through at the cross. Crosses were used for punishing people that the Romans believed didn't even deserve to live. They were subhuman. They were deserved to be wiped off the face of the earth. He was beaten and scorned by men. He was betrayed by a close friend. The people that he came to set free rejected him. And he received one of the most painful, agonizing executions that mankind has ever invented. Now, if you remember back to our definition of endurance, this idea of bearing up under the circumstances that we're in, Jesus perfectly did that. It says he endured the cross. He patiently, contentedly obeyed his Father all the way to the very end. He didn't flinch one moment. He didn't didn't try to squeeze out of it at the last minute. But he submitted his will to the Father. So we know that he endured, but why did he endure? It says, for the joy that was set before him. Notice it was for joy that he endured the cross. Now what, what joy is this? What was the joy that motivated him? I think based upon what we're going to see in the next phrases coming, is that this joy is his reunion with his heavenly Father. He knew that he would, he would share in the glory and the joy that he had with the Father once he was exalted. In John 12, 23, he calls his crucifixion glorification. And in John 17... He says, I glorified you on earth, praying to the Father. He says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prays for this glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. He was looking forward to it. He had his mind set on it. And because of that, he persevered through the end. But notice, as he endured the cross, he despised the shame as well. It, it means that he, he didn't take the shame as, as something to be considered. He, he shoved it aside. He didn't even account for it. There was shame heaped upon him from all of the people around him, and yet he considered it as nothing, considered it as rubbish. He bore all the shame of our sin, and yet he despised it 
in order to endure the cross. He didn't let his shame get in the way of reaching the end goal of his race. He crossed the finish line in spite of the shame. So Jesus remained faithful during his race. He trusted his Father. He believed that God would keep his promises. And that's exactly what God did. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And from there he ascended to heaven where he is glorified as the forerunner of our faith. Now notice the last phrase of verse 2 says, And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this has direct reference to Jesus finishing his race. He made it. He didn't give up. He crossed the finish line in full faith. And now he's there calling out to us, saying, don't give up. Keep running. Run faster. He says, I am worth it all. Whatever you may experience, I am worth it. Don't stop running your race. Listen to the voice of your Savior this morning calling out to you to run. Okay, so what are these truths about Christ? All the who He is and what He's done, what does that mean for us today? Well, I think, I think there's at least two things that we can gain and apply from these truths about Christ. First, let's let the example of Jesus be an encouragement to you. Many of you are carrying burdens this morning that might, maybe others know about and maybe others don't. Your faith is being tested. It's being tried. The pressure is on. And you're wondering if you're going to be able to keep going. You're wondering if you can endure, if you can press on. I encourage you, look to Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith, who gave you the faith to begin with and will bring it to completion. And learn from his example that to keep your eyes set on the goal, you will finish the race. The the second way that we can bring these truths to bear upon our hearts today is to let the finished race of Jesus be a refuge for you. Let the finished race of Jesus be a refuge for you. Listen, we can all attest to the fact that we don't run this race perfectly. That daily we find ourselves flat on our face in the middle of the track, tripped up again by sin, discouraged by the burdens in our lives, and we see our failure all around us daily. But we can't let these things have us lose sight of the reward, lose sight of the finish line. And see, Jesus finished his race so that you can complete yours. He knew that you couldn't run your race on your own. He knew that you wouldn't have the strength or the faith or the endurance to do it on your own. And that's why he had to go to the cross, to secure a way for you to finish so that you could be brought home to God to enjoy that fellowship with the Father that He Himself was longing to enjoy. 
And so when you find yourself failing again and realizing that you're not running like you should, look to Jesus and find the forgiveness that's at the cross. Knowing that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame that was due to you. Taking the punishment that was due for your sin so that you could be forgiven and you can be set free and those sins can be actually cast off and you can now run. You can run because Jesus secured it for you. And it can seem overwhelming at times to think that we have this whole race to run. But all we got to do is take it one day at a time, one step at a time, and ask, are, am I being faithful today? Am I running faithful today? And so, may we be counted among those who do not shrink back in this race of faith, but we endure to the end and will one day behold the one who ran the race ahead of us. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the encouragement from your word to run hard. And Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, has run the race before us. That He has endured the cross, He despised the shame, and He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God and interceding for us. Father, I pray for each one here that you would encourage them this morning to run the race that they have been given with endurance, that you'd strengthen them and may the strides that they take today and this week move them closer to the goal. And Father, we just admit corporately that we are all incapable of running this race in our own strength. And so we cry out to you that you would keep us to the end. We thank you that you have promised to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.